0: Well, turn with me to Ecclesiastes. We're going to be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, a tough book, a book, to be honest with you, that when I first read as a brand new believer in Christ, I hated the book. I absolutely hated it because I thought, what a downer, you know? What a pessimistic book, and I thought, I don't want any more. I don't know why it's in the Bible, but I don't want any more to do with it. Uh, over the years, I've learned that there's some really valuable stuff in the book of Ecclesiastes, and so uh, as we do our, our series on study the Bible, I want us to think about this particular passage especially. Uh, as we look at this uh, book... Uh, there's some things that we need to understand. In fact, we need to understand about Bible study in general. You realize and remember that the reason I'm doing this series is because 500,000 times every month, people are Googling uh, Bibles, how to study your Bible, which means 6 million people a year are Googling how to study your Bible. And th- think, wow, this is a, a topic people are interested in. And so uh, it's important for us to know, as believers in Christ... I would say that most believers in Christ are more like the little child that, uh, in a supermarket that's looking around. You put the baby or the child in the, in the grocery cart and push him into the store. And, and if there wasn't somebody to open the cans for them, they'd starve to death, right? And we have the Bible, the Word of God, God's revelation to us. He's revealing himself to us. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. And yet, we're like the little child that doesn't have the tools. We don't know how to go at it. We don't know how to open it. And so I want to, over this series, not only study parts of the Bible, I want us to get some tools together uh, so that we can understand how to study our Bibles. When you open the Bible, there's three things, three questions you need to know. Three uh, perspectives. Uh, The first question is, what does the text say? That's the most important question. We tend to ask the second question first, what does it mean? We look at the Bible, we read a passage, and we look at somebody else and go, what does this mean? And we should ask ourselves right after that the first question, what does it say? Well, what does it say? What does the text say? Because that's going to give us meaning. And so we go back. And we, but we've got to understand how to look. And that's why we looked at Acts 1-8. And, we, and, and if you'll remember I, uh, my assignment uh, in first year of seminary, 25 observations from that one verse. And then 25 more and then 25 more. 600 observations over the course of 50 years my professor had collected on one verse. We're barely scratching the surface in terms of observation. And so we need to grow in our ability to observe. And because of that... I have another uh, observation exercise for you. I want you to watch on the screens as there's a video, and I want to see what you observe, okay? Ready? Here we go.
1: To test just how much attention the attention-stealing design of the new Skoda Fabia actually steals, we left one parked on this ordinary road in West London. We wanted to see if its sharp, crystalline shapes, bold lines, and lower, wider profile would attract the desired level of attention. Will the 17-inch black alloy wheels stop passers-by in their tracks? Will the angular headlights attract the attention of other road users? Will a crowd gather to check out its fresh, sporty look? Well, not quite. But did the attention-stealing design distract you from noticing that the entire street has been changing right before your very eyes? Don't believe us? Have another look. Did you spot the van changing to a taxi? How about the scooter changing to a pair of bicycles? Or the lady holding a pig? Let alone the fact that the entire street is now completely different. Didn't... (laughs) Do you notice?
0: Hey, there's some things you may have seen, but you realize, wow, you missed a lot, right? And it's the same way with the Scriptures. We begin to read the Scriptures, and there's, we read a passage and go, wow, you know, and we think we've got it all by just one reading. Read it ten times. You'll notice things you didn't see before. In fact, I would encourage you, this is an application from this, is be a Book of the Month Club member. Book of the Month. Take one book of the Bible and decide to study it for a month. To read it in your quiet times. And if you do that, in five and a half years, you'll have read all 66 books of the Bible and spent a month doing so. That's the challenge. I throw it out there to you, think about it. And when you read it, read the text at least 10 times during the month at one sitting. Either read it in the version that you have, read it in a different version that maybe you've borrowed or you've got another one at home. Download the U version uh, 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 on your, on your uh, app on your phone. It will read some of them to you. So hear somebody else read it. And when somebody else reads a text, words stand out that didn't stand out before when you were reading it. Maybe get one of your family members to read a few verses or a chapter and, and, and then listen to what, how they read it. And there will be things that stand out as you read that you will begin to understand that you never saw before. I had a professor that said, before you preach any text, you want to read it 40 times. Wow. You want to read the book that it's in 40 times. And so you want to know, you want to see, you want to observe, and we want to learn to observe well. And so when we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, we need to learn to uh, observe well. And so we start out With the opening words, and and there are six questions that I told you before that we want to ask and answer. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Those are key questions. Those are questions when you open any book that you read, whether it's the Scriptures or any other one. You want to ask yourselves those kinds of questions. Who's writing? Who's he writing to? Uh, uh, Why is he writing this? Uh, What's the significance of this after this or this before that? And you begin to just barrage the text with questions. And some you can answer, some you can't answer. God said in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. There's some things he's revealed, some things he's kept for himself. So don't be discouraged that you can't answer a question because some things are mystery. Uh, And so we look at this uh, beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, very first verse of chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, the words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem, who is that? That's the who question, right? Right? Solomon. In fact, Solomon wrote Proverbs, and he wrote Song of Solomon. He wrote Ecclesiastes. So we know he he loves to write poetical wisdom-type literature. He starts off with the very first thing he says is meaningless, meaningless, or in some versions, vanity, vanity, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And you go, wow, what an encouraging guy. All right? And you go, wait a minute, is this the, and so you look at the end of the book, because you know, well, if I look at the end of the book, maybe it'll tell me a little bit about why he's writing this thing, and and maybe he gives me a little bit of insight into it. And so you read the very uh, near the end, the last chapters, and and guess what? He says the same thing. He bookends. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. And you close the book and go, I'm done. (laughs) 37 times through the book, he says, meaningless, meaningless. He says, meaningless, a chasing after wind, a chasing after wind, meaningless. And and he says it over and over, 37 times. Good rule of Bible study. Look for repetition. Repeated words. That helps you understand what he's talking about. If he's talking about meaningless, then he's either saying, everything is meaningless, and that's what I'm talking about, the meaninglessness of life. Or, when you begin to look at it, you see there's other repeated things. You see another phrase that's repeated. He says, verse 3, What does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? That was a phrase that jumped out at me years later after I began to read this book. And I never noticed that phrase before. It's used 31 times in the book, under the sun or under heaven so what's he saying? He's saying, the horizontal. If I, my whole life is just the horizontal, if it's just focused on this, it's meaningless. Then you'll see something else that's repeated. And, it's, uh, and, and I've, I actually highlight in colors in my Bible, and I highlight it in green. The first time he starts repeating this refrain all the way through the book. And the refrain we find in verse 24. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This this too I see is from the hand of God. For without him, without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? And therein he gives us the understanding of where he's going. He's not talking about the meaninglessness of life. He's talking about how God gives meaning to life. And without God, there is no meaning to life. Without God, we can't understand suffering. Suffering is just something you endure, right? But if God is here, then meaning comes through suffering. And so you can go through difficult times. And you know, God has a purpose in this. And I don't know what the purpose is sometimes. It's a mystery. Sometimes that purpose, he reveals, like in the book of Job, was to impact a celestial being, a guy living here for God, What's going to instruct the celestial being Satan and show, no, people love God regardless of whether he gives them good things or not. They don't just love God because God gives them good things. That's the book of Job. And so we realize there is meaning in suffering. There is meaning in life. There is meaning in joy. There is, but, but if you just have the horizontal, no meaning. And when things go south, when things don't go right, when you get disillusioned by life, all of a sudden you throw up your hands and go, what's the use? And that's the part of the book that we see is the horizontal part, but you can't miss these refrains he keeps coming back to. Because he said, this is meaningless, but God. And this is meaningless, but God. And this is meaningless, but God. So God gives meaning to life. There's a phrase that 's uh, uh become uh, uh, more current in, in in our culture and it 's called human flourishing and this idea of human flourishing is you 'll see it now if you google it uh, on online you 'll find there 's a lot of people talking about what creates human flourishing and you'll see secular philosophies and 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 uh other philosophies dealing with this issue of human flourishing what causes life to just you to flourish in life what causes meaning to happen in life so that you give your life to meaningful things I heard a lecture on that on Thursday by one of my professors and he talked about this idea of human flourishing and and I was was fascinated by the concept that it means well-being, that it talks about blessing, that in the Old Testament, the idea of shalom carried more than just peace, more than this idea of just inner peace or peace among enemies or among one another. It carried this idea of wholeness and well-being and satisfaction with life. Human flourishing. How can we flourish in this life and not just have meaning, but get to the end of our lives and think that was a life well-lived? See, that's the question that he's wrestling with here. The guy who was, that God said, I'll give you anything you want, and he asked for wisdom. And so he Unfortunately, he didn't always follow that wisdom, and you look at his life, and he gave himself to a lot of things, end of his life, he's gone after uh, other gods, the gods of some of the wives that he had married, and yet he had wisdom. It shows us we can have all wisdom, but if we don't have application, if we don't figure out how to do it and how to live it out in our life, that wisdom does us no good. And so if we want to flourish as people, if we want to have human flourishing as a part of our existence, Solomon says, here's how it goes. Here's some things you need to understand. And so let's look at this because I think in most of our lives, we want to get to the end of our life and think that was a life well lived. It gives you a lot deeper uh, appreciation for this book of Ecclesiastes. So, he starts off in verse 12 and says, I, the teacher, was a king over Israel. I devoted myself to study and explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And so then he gives us a list. And we're not, I'm going to go through the whole book today, but it's going to be just kind of a 30,000-foot a, a view. In fact, sometimes we need to do that. Many times what we do in our study of the word is we get locked into one verse or a few words, and we're just kind of locked into those, and we don't know their context. And so we need to back up the lens and if you'll notice in this series I've done that in each passage that we've been in. In Ezra 7:10, we're looking at Ezra devoted himself to study God's word to observe it and to teach it. And then I backed up and said when did he speak these words? He spoke them when he was in Babylon. He spoke them. That was the where. He, was, he spoke them 128 years after Israel had gone into exile. Nobody had been to Israel. Nobody had seen the land. And he's studying God's word. And so we backed up the lens a little further and saw that his was only the second of three returns back to Israel. The first one was Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. His was to rebuild the people. And Nehemiah's to rebuild the walls. And all of a sudden you see three books and how they fit together. And you see him in context. And you begin to ask questions. Why would you study the word of God? Why would you feel the need? Because you'd never seen the sacrifices that you're studying about. And yet God, because he knew God's word, chose him to take the people back and to to restore them spiritually to God. Then you see in Acts 1.8, the second passage that we looked at, and, and we're looking at this one singular passage, and you we think, What he's he's saying, stay in Jerusalem, and, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, remotest part of the earth, and a very but then you back up and you think, Why is he saying this? And you realize they're asking a question. Are you going to restore the kingdom? And he says, Don't worry about that. Here's what I want you to focus on. Then you realize he's he right after this, he ascends into heaven. These are his last words. And all of a sudden you, you become more interested. This is the last words, the last things that he said, which are really important, usually the last words you say on your deathbed, and there's Jesus' last words before he ascends into heaven. He gives us our marching orders. And then you see, oh, this is the structure of the whole book. Jerusalem, chapters 1 to 7. Judea, Samaria, chapters 8 through 12. remotest part of the earth, 13 through the end of the book. And you go, wow. And then if you back up the lens a little further, and I didn't share this last time, you see Luke wrote two books, a gospel and Acts. And in his gospel, he has Jerusalem starting in Galilee of the Gentiles, as Isaiah said it, and he's moving toward Jerusalem. And in the book of Acts, they start in Jerusalem, and they move to the Gentiles. And you begin to see how both of his books fit together. And it begins to raise your understanding. And so you look at the book of Ecclesiastes and you realize, where is he going with this? And he has layers. He lists a few things and he says, but God. And he lists a few things and he says, but God. And and he's writing right before, uh, in fact, you see, this is a guy who's experienced life. So it's at the end of Solomon's life. Which means that it's right before the kingdom splits into two kingdoms because his son didn't get it. His son didn't understand the meaning of life, and he thought the meaning of life was about taxing people more and building more and greater buildings. And it wasn't about that. It was about relationship to God. And because he missed that, the kingdom split into two. Ten nations abandoned the two southern nations, or southern uh, tribes. Ten tribes left. Two tribes stay, Judah and Benjamin. And so he starts out and he talks about, here's the things that I considered. Here's the things that I studied. Verse 16, he says, I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge and that focus on knowledge. And I focus on that because he talks about wisdom later in the book. In fact, he talks about wisdom later in in chapter 2. And so I think he's talking about intellectualism, that it's not seeking after Intellectual things that's going to be meaningful in life. I say that working on a PhD, right? (laughs) And I thought about that as I was reading this. I thought, what's gonna happen to my all my diplomas, right? On the wall. You got your skins on the wall in frames. What's gonna happen after I die? Probably gonna go in a box. Never to see the light of day again. Right? Generations later, that box will be lost. End of story. I started thinking, wow, intellectualism, it's, he says, chasing after wind, and it is. The second thing in chapter 2, verse 1, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, hedonism. And he says, this too is chasing after wind, chasing after our own pleasures, and we all do that. We have our own pleasures. I mean, one pleasure that most of us have every morning is a good old cup of joe, right? Cup of coffee. And it used to be just black coffee, and now, man, we we doctor that stuff up. No fifty cent coffee for us. I mean, it's five to ten bucks we poured into that cup. Creams and the vanillas and flavors and just for starters. He says it's meaningless. Verse four, chapter two. I undertook great projects. Materialism. He talks about the material things of this life, and he says, that's meaningless. He talks about wisdom in chapter 2, verse 12. In verse 13, he says, I saw that wisdom is better than folly. So he, he acknowledges that, just as light is better than darkness. But then he says, then I thought, verse 15, in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. Fool dies, I die. Wise die, so does a fool. And so you think, what's... Value is there in wisdom. In fact, he says, what then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. And then he deals with work in verse 17 to the end of the chapter. He says, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. You can quote that on Monday, right? All of it is meaningless, a chasing after wind. I hated all the things I had told for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. And so he's saying, here you work all your life, you accumulate wealth, and then it's for the next person. And you think, what did you gain from that? And he says, it's meaningless. And then he says, that's why he says, this too I see is from the hand of God, for without him. Who can eat or find enjoyment? And so then there's that first refrain. That refrain, by the way, is a, is a repeated refrain, but it's not repeated identically every time. It's a restatement. So when you're doing Bible study, look for repetition of words, but also look for repetition of ideas that are restated differently. Sometimes restatement is easier because you'll say the same thing using different words repetition is using, saying the same thing using the same words saying the same thing using the same words saying the same thing okay you get it right but restatement is using different words and sometimes using that different word you go oh now I know what they're talking about and so that's very helpful to us and so you'll see this refrain throughout the book which makes it hard to chart the book Which is one of the reasons why when I charted the book, I made a slide where I have just all the names of the issues that he deals with, and and it's life questioned, and then life answered. And with life answered, I just have three things listed at the end. Well, he goes on into chapter 3, and he says, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot. A famous uh, passage, right? What's the repeated word? Time. Since I've been doing a lot of reading and PhD studies, I'm amazed at how many theologians wrestle with the issue of time. We're fascinated by it in our culture, this idea of time, time time-bending, time travel. Uh, there are movies that are out that deal with some of these, uh, these issues of time, and we're, we're fascinated with them. Uh, Back to the Future was one place that uh, we saw this idea of time travel. Uh, there were some old H.G. Uh, Wells movies uh, called time uh, travel. Um, and so uh, uh, we, we, we love to, to think about this idea of time. And you think about God, he's the great I am. He's all present, ever present. He's not impacted by time. He doesn't have a now and then. He's I am. He is the o. and and so people wrestle with, well, how does that work? How can God change his mind in scripture if he's not involved in time because that involves a change. And and there's all these different questions and you realize, wow, Solomon 900 years before the time of Christ was wrestling with the issue of time. How do I know that? He's, he's talking about the seasons of life, right? And some of you are in different seasons of life. You have little kids and that's one season. Uh, you just got married, don't have kids. That's another season. You're single, that's, that's one season. You're in college or school, that's one season. Uh, you're at the end of life, that's another season. And you find yourself in different seasons of life. And it, just know that this too shall change. This too shall pass. If it's a tough season for you, this too shall pass. But how do I know that he's talking about more than just seasons of life? Because he goes in verse 11 and says, He's made everything beautiful in his time. He's also set eternity in the hearts of men. And so he's talking about this idea of eternity, this idea of eternity past, eternity future. And and he set that eternity in our hearts. Who's the only one who is eternal? God himself. So he set this hole, this God-shaped hole inside of us that only God can truly fill. And so we know that he's dealing with this issue of time. He deals with the issue of justice. In in verse 16, he says, In the place of justice, wickedness was there. And you think, man, there there needs to be justice that's done. It needs to happen. And the very next verse, he says, God will bring judgment, both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. And so because there's a God... When injustice happens, we know there is a God who's going to bring justice at some point in life. This next one in verse eighteen, he says, "I also thought as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Men' fate is like the animals; the same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other." And I'm sitting there, you know, feeding my dog. You know, it's a little bit of bacon this morning. Thinking, uh, you know, Chip, you and me, buddy. One day we're both uh, be pushing up daisies, and I. And so you you look at that and you think, well, maybe I'm just going to go ahead and eat this bacon instead of giving it no. (laughs) I mean, I do have an advantage, right? I get to eat on the table. But, uh, you know, he says, so I saw that there's nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work in the context of God, right? Because that's what he's been talking about. Then he talks about oppression, and he saw the tears of the oppressed, and he talks about this idea of oppression, an idea of envy. He looks at the idea of isolation, And so many times in our lives we live in isolation, not in community. And I was thinking about that in this book because he says two are better than one, verse 9. Because they have a good return for their work. God intends for us to be together. Together is better. And so think about what the Ecclesiastes is talking about. Together with God and together with one another, with other believers in Christ is better. It's what he's designed for us. That's why when he designed the church, he designed the two best relationships he could imagine which is our relationship with him, vertical and with one another, horizontally. That's why the church is such a powerful instrument of his. And it can go either way. Powerful in the wrong direction. He desires for it to go powerful in the right direction. Advancement is meaningless. You want to advance in your job, great. That's wonderful. Uh, One day you're going to be, you know, whatever you are in your company, VP, CEO, CEO. And when you die, what happens? Gone. If you live your life for advancement and and you're hoping to get your name on a building, you know, they tear down buildings. (laughs) Chester Ditto Golf Course. How many golfed on that course? Any of y'all golf on Chester Ditto? Guess what? They changed the name. Chester Ditto's out. Texas Rangers in. Gone. Statues. You want a statue to yourself? Guess what? Statues go away too, right? Because generations after, go and look at the statues, go, wait a minute, why do we have that? Get rid of it. You know, you, you see that, you saw that in Nazi Germany. We saw that in Iraq. We see that in our own country. And you kind of go, okay, you want to be on a statue? Well, it's going to come down at some point. Just know. And so we look at that and think advancement, there, there's meaningless, chasing after wind. He talks about vows. Uh, that, you know, if you make a vow, you better keep it. You make a vow to God, you better keep that vow. And stand in awe of God. He says in verse uh, uh, chapter 5 and verse uh, 7, Much dreaming and many words are meaningless, therefore stand in awe of God. He talks about riches being meaningless, that they never satisfy. He says, Then I realized, verse 18 of chapter 5, that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life. God has given him. This is the gift of God. And so he keeps going back to that familiar refrain. In chapter 7 and 8 and uh, 9 and 10, he talks about wisdom and folly. And then it brings us to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, verse verse 1, he says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Why? Why? It says, before the days of trouble come and the years approach, you will say, I find no pleasure in them. There's going to come a time when we get older and we can't do the things that we used to do. And in fact, you see a bunch of figures of speech. When you're looking at poetical language, uh, which Ecclesiastes is part of the poetry of the Old Testament, It's like the Psalms. It's like the Proverbs, which is wisdom literature. It's like Song of Solomon. There's poetical language. And so we need to understand that when we normally read something, we need to remember that if the plain sense makes good sense, we don't seek another sense. But in this case, it's pretty obvious that he's referring to something else. He says, the strong men stoop, talking about posture. He says, when the grinders cease because they were a few, in other words, you're missing teeth, he says, and those looking through the windows grow dim. Our eyes aren't as good as they used to be. When the doors of the street are closed and the sound of the grinding fades. In other words, you're indoors. When men rise up at the sound of birds, so a little chirp wakes you up in the middle of the night. And yet, even though you're sleepless, you have a hard time hearing, he says, but all their songs grow faint. When men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, so there's fear, more fear in life. When the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along and desire no longer is stirred, sexual desire is gone. It says, then man goes to his eternal home, and mourners go about the streets. And so include God in your life from the earliest ages, because there's going to come a point when you grow older, and you're going to be indoors, and it's not going to be the same. It says, remember him before the silver cord is severed or the golden bow is broken. Before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the well broken, or the wheel broken at the well. And so what is his conclusion from all of this? He goes back to a refrain and, and he calls it his conclusion. He says, Now here is the conclusion of the matter, chapter 12 and verse 13. Now that all has been heard, here's the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment, every, including every hidden thing, whether whether it is good or evil. God is going to bring those things about. I'd like to close by a quote uh, made by Paul David Tripp in a book that he titles, In an Age of Opportunity. And as as we do, if the praise team is here, if they want to go ahead and come up on stage, uh, go ahead and do so, because I know we're running a little uh, longer, and we also have a baptism after, so... Um, in his book called An Age of Opportunity, I love that title because he's talking about uh, uh, teenagers and he's saying, this is a time of opportunity in your life. This is a time of your life. You've got your whole life in front of you. Guess what God can do through you? Guess what can happen in your life? And he's saying, but include God in this age of opportunity. He says, if you only look at life horizontally, all things lose their meaning. And so he's saying, it's not just this, it's this. All labor, all wisdom, all achievement, all pleasure, all success, and all toil are utterly meaningless unless connected to God. All of life blows in a chaotic mass of meaningless choices unless it is rooted in the one fact that makes every other fact make sense God. That is why the family is expected to be a theological community. I love that. A theological community. How how does that work? Where we help our children see God in everything, asking questions about God, His will, His work, no matter the subject or situation being discussed. That we are all engaged in theology. That we're all engaged in asking questions about God. And that we're in the process of discussing that and and, and wrestling through some of the tougher issues. And when we do that in the home, and when we do that in the church, we begin to grow in our understanding of who God is. And then if we understand how to include God in those facets of our life, not thinking that our quiet time is our time with God, but it's the time to kickstart our day with God and that we include him in all that we do. When we live a life like that, life won't be meaningless. It will be full of his meaning. It will be full of eternity and that eternity in the hearts of men in the hearts of women. is going to be satisfied in the one who satisfies all of us. Father, we come to you this morning and we pray that you would grow us in our understanding of you. Lord, I pray that you would draw us to yourself. I pray that our lives would not be meaningless existence, just going through the motions and just checking the boxes. Married, check. Job, check. our lives would be drawn to you. Lord, I pray that all of us would be drawn to you, that all of us would see that our lives have great meaning with you and apart from you, nothing. Help us to understand. Help us not to just go through life and have regrets at the end of our life. Help us at the end of our lives to be excited that we got to invest in that which lasts